Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 12. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The word of the Lord. God, I thank you for Christ Church Vienna. Lord, I thank you for what you're birthing here in this community. Lord, the ways that you're filling this auditorium with people who want to know you or are seeking you or are curious about you. Lord, we pray that as we look into your word uh, this morning that you would guide and direct all that we think and, and, and uh, discover about you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Back about 70 years ago, in 1947, a British poet named W.H. Auden wrote a very famous poem that he entitled The Age of Anxiety. And this poem was a resounding success. It even won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature that particular year. And I think it was because it sort of captured the essence of that very troubled age, an age that was haunted by the, the newfound discovery of the atomic bomb, by the, the specter of uh, worldwide communist revolution. And you know, it's interesting, it's been over 70 years since Auden wrote that poem, and in some ways the world is very different, and in some ways the world is exactly the same. Because even though the circumstances that prompted the writing of the poem have changed significantly, I think it's fair to say that we still live in an age of anxiety, don't we? We live in an age of anxiety. The old fears of the past have simply been replaced by new ones. Fears like global terrorism, the breakdown of our political system, even the potential catastrophe of global climate change. We live in an age of anxiety. And that's not just true on a societal level. I think it's true, I think, if we examine our own lives right here on a personal level as we experience life day to day here in Northern Virginia, I think we experience a lot of anxiety. I think many people, I see this as a pastor, many of us struggle with some sort of nagging anxiety in our lives, whether it has to do with some issue in our families or some issue at school or some issue at work or some issue with our health or our finances. We all live with some sort of anxiety in our lives. Worry and fear, they often loiter around like unwelcome guests that we just wish would go home. Can you just please leave? And so what do we do about that? How do we handle these fears and anxieties we have? How do we address these challenges that we face day in and day out? Challenges that often intimidate us, confuse us, sometimes even paralyze us. What do we do with our fear? What do we do with our anxiety? 
Really, that's what Jesus wants to talk to us about this morning in our gospel lesson from Luke chapter 12. Because here in this particular passage, Jesus, what he's going to teach us more than anything is what do you do with worry? What do you do with anxiety? As we look at this passage this morning, I hope I want to point out three very important ways that Jesus teaches us to address fear and anxiety in our lives. Let's start by looking at what he says in verses 22 and 23. And it says this. It says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you eat, what, nor about your body, what you put on. For life is more than food, Jesus says, and the body is more than clothing. Now, what's interesting to understand what Jesus is getting at here, it's important to realize that the words that he's saying here come right on the heels of something he just said earlier in chapter 12. And if you look, perhaps if you have a Bible, you can go home this afternoon, look this up, Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells a story at the very beginning of the chapter. He tells his listeners a parable, a parable that we now know is the parable of the rich fool. If you've ever read the Gospel of Luke, you may remember this particular story. What Jesus said is there was once a rich man, and this rich man did very well for himself. In fact, he did so well that he, he tore down his house. Ever seen that happen in your neighborhood? He tore down his house and he built a bigger one. He needed a bigger uh, uh, room for his TV and a bigger fridge for his kitchen. He built a bigger house. He, he, he realized that his barns and his silos were not adequate to store all of his many possessions. And so he tore it down. He built a newer one, a bigger one, a more impressive one. And Jesus said, this is exactly what the man did. And this is what the man said to himself in the process. He said to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink. And be merry. But Jesus said this man had not considered one very important variable, and that was the fact that he was mortal. That was the fact that he was going to die. In fact, he did die. And that very night, as he, as he realized that he was dying, he realized that all of those belongings that he had put so much trust in, all those new and improved buildings and barns that he had constructed for himself, they could not help him at all. This man had made the foolish choice of laying up treasure for himself rather than laying up treasure towards God. And this foolish choice is coming home to roost. This man had put his trust, his security, his hopes for the future in the very things that wouldn't last, that wouldn't remain. It's a very sobering parable that Jesus tells, one that, that, interestingly enough, I think actually prompts a lot of anxiety because the things that Jesus is talking about touch on the very things that we care about, the very things that bring up our fears, our anxieties, the questions that keep us up at night, the things that won't let us rest. And perhaps if you're anything like me, you have these questions running through your mind. You're like, you look at your mortgage statement each month, you think, Northern Virginia is insane. I mean, how do we pay for this house that we live in? Or perhaps you recently graduated from college, and you look at that staggering college bill you have from UVA or from tech, and you wonder, how in the world am I ever going to pay that off? Or if you're getting ready for college, you think exactly the same thing, but on the front end. Or perhaps you're getting close to retirement. You think, how in the world am I ever going to have enough money to live and support myself in the future? You know what's interesting? Jesus knows that we have these questions. He knows that these questions tend to haunt us, that they tend to linger in our minds. And so what Jesus does in this next part of chapter 12 is he addresses these concerns head on. And what Jesus essentially says to us is this. He says, I know these temptations that you're facing and you're tempted to worry about them. 
In fact, I know you're, you're going to have the urge to even obsess about them. But I don't want you to be consumed by anxiety anymore. I don't want you to live with residual fear. Now, how in the world can Jesus say something as bold as that? How can he say something like that? I'll look again at verse 23. Jesus says, life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Life is more than food, Jesus says, and the body is more than clothing. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't say that material things like clothing or food are irrelevant, that they're not worth thinking about. He doesn't say that at all. And so what Jesus does say is that life is about more than those things. So, of course, we need clothes to wear. We need money to pay our mortgages and our taxes and our college bills. We need money. That's all true. But at the same time, and this is so important, so please don't miss it, life is about so much more than these things as well. Life is about so much more than these things. What a timely word for those of us who live here in northern Virginia where the message that we receive time and time again is that the whole point of life is to get ahead. We need to get ahead, we're told, again and again. We're told we need to live in the right neighborhood, and our kids need to go to the right schools, and we need to eat at the right restaurants and take the right vacations and have the right body. We're told that we need to do it right. We have to do it perfect. We need to get ahead. This is the message that we receive all the time. I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. A friend of mine in my small group told me a very Interesting story. He told, told me when he first got to D.C., he had a very lucrative job in a consulting firm. It was a sort of job that paid him unbelievably well, but basically sucked up his entire life. He said he never saw his wife, he never saw his kids, and he was completely exhausted as he was this relentless hours that he was putting in. And he said one day that one of the partners in his firm, who is considered to be a very empathetic sort of person, noticed this. And he pulled my friend aside and had a little talk. He needed to encourage my friend. And this is what he said to my friend. He says, I know that you're struggling. I know that you want to be a good dad and husband. So I want to remind you why you are doing this, why you're working these long, unrelenting hours. You're doing this so your kids can have a great education so that they can get into the right college, so that your wife can buy whatever she wants, so that you can go on great vacations together at some point in the future. That's why you're working so hard. Buck up, buddy. And my friend said what, what he thought, this partner thought was supposed to be an encouragement talk was really a wake-up call for my friend. My friend who had gone to church his whole life and realized in that moment he was living someone else's story. He was operating from a different set of principles. He was living with this operative vision that the whole point of life is to get ahead. And I think many of us, that's exactly what we do. Those of us who claim to follow Christ, we can get caught up in this vision of life that is in the air, that is swimming all around us. And as a result, we begin to measure ourselves by the standards of the world around us. And over time, we become consumed by worry and fear and anxiety when we sense we're not living up to these things. Now, let me give you another illustration from my own life. My wife, as Johnny uh, mentioned, my wife and I, we live in Arlington. And right now, uh, our county is in the midst of redistricting our uh, middle schools. We have several middle schools in the county, and the, the, the county's in the mid- middle of redistricting things, and, uh, which is a very contentious process. I don't know what it's like in Fairfax County, but it is contentious uh, in Arlington. 
And where we live, we, we live right on the border of, of two different school districts. And I think it's fair to say that one of the schools is more desirable and one of them is less so. And, and we're kind of in that desirable neighborhood and we want to stay in that desirable neighborhood. Well, earlier this fall, the uh, county school board uh, sent out some emails of some initial proposals they wanted to make to the districts. And afterward, we received an email from the, the woman who's in charge of our neighborhood association. And she sent us the email, and it was in all caps, with several letters bolded, I mean, in red. Have you ever gotten an email like that? You're like, oh, crap. <laughs> and uh, as we read through, I think it's fair to say she was tapping into all the deepest fears of people in our neighborhood. Fears about our kids being bussed long distances, fears about our property values going down, fears about our neighborhood cohesiveness disappearing, fears about our kids suffering. I describe it as sort of an apocalyptic sort of email. And afterward, at a school pickup and at soccer games, you could hear the buzz among parents as we were beginning to discuss the situation with each other. And it was being discussed in ever darker tones. And there were emails that were flying all over the place. People were strategizing about what to do. People were considering what sort of political power do we have as a neighborhood. And you could sense the fear. You could almost smell it. And I have to admit that my wife and I, as we began to think about these things, as we began to hear these conversations, we began to worry too. We began to wonder, what what if they're right? What if these proposed changes make our lives worse? What what do we do? And these fears began to eat away at us. And then uh, about mid-October, we went away on our annual church retreat. And you might say we sort of stepped out of our North Arlington bubble. And we really had the chance to get away, to, to really listen to the Lord, pray the Lord, sing to the Lord, be with other Christians together. And as we did, something really interesting happened to us in that experience. We were uh, at a retreat uh, out near Harrisonburg. As we were there, in a sense, you might say our, our focus began to change. As we began to think about things that will truly last, things that will linger on into eternity. And when we got home, my wife and I, we took a walk together. And as we did, we were saying, well, what did you experience on the retreat? And, and my wife started, she's like, you know, I'm not as afraid as I was before we left. I'm not as anxious. And I admitted to her, I was feeling the same way. Now, what's interesting about that is our circumstances were exactly the same. The, the school district had still not made up their minds. But you see, what had happened is God was reminding us of the real point of life. He's reminding us that life is about more than food or clothing or where our kids go to school. And you see, that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to stop, and he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember. Because you know, so often in life, we get disoriented. We get turned around by our fears, and we begin to lose focus. And so the first thing we need to do when we are experiencing great fear, great anxiety, is we need to stop, and we need to remember the real point of life. Which brings us to the second thing that Jesus teaches us here in this passage. Look, look at verse 24. Verse 24, this is what Jesus goes on to say. He says, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And what we see here is that Jesus not only wants us to stop and to remember that we're, life is about more than food and clothing, but he also wants us to stop and reflect. He says, I want you to stop and I want you to reflect on how your Heavenly Father is taking care of you. He wants you to reflect on your Heavenly Father's care for you. First of all, Jesus says, I want you to consider the ravens. Look at the ravens, he said. 
And these were some of the most common animals of all of first century Israel where Jesus lived. And he tells his disciples, I want you to stop and notice something about them. These ravens, they don't have barns, do they? They don't have storehouses. And yet, God himself takes care of them. They have exactly what they need to eat. Even though they didn't sow any seeds, even though they didn't reap any harvest. And if you watch them, Jesus says, you'll learn something really important about life. You'll discover that God is watching out for them. He's taking care of them. Now, what Jesus is getting at here is not, and I need to make a little caveat, he's not making a critique of saving money. He's, he's not saying, I want you to be imprudent with your wealth, because I, I like to say there's a reason why the book of Proverbs was put in the scriptures. It's not wrong to be wise with your money. It's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, what Jesus is getting at here is often the hidden motivation for saving money, or often hidden motivation for saving money which, to put it quite bluntly, is fear. It's fear. That, that's why we do it. We, we want to look out for ourselves. It's fear that if we don't fret and worry and try to hoard our belongings and our money, then we're going to be doomed. Because we tell ourselves, if, if we don't look out for ourselves, no one else will. Certainly not God. And you see, when we do this, we're, we're living like spiritual orphans, aren't we? We're living with this mentality that it's totally up to us to take care of ourselves. It's totally up to us to look out for our own well-being. We're living like an orphan. And implicit in this way of thinking is the conviction that our Heavenly Father, he's distant. He's even absent from our lives. And you see, that's why Jesus addresses this worry directly. By telling us, he says, I want you to reflect on the ravens. I want you to notice them because they have almost nothing and they could not survive without the generosity of their creator. And yet, if you notice them, they're provided for so abundantly. And what Jesus says is, that's true for the ravens. If that's true for them, don't you think your heavenly father is gonna look out for you? I mean, the ravens, these are some of the most insignificant parts of God's creation. Don't you think he's gonna look after you? The one who bears his very stamp, his very image, don't you think he's going to care for you? That's what I want you to reflect on, Jesus says. Which sounds great, doesn't it? But as the author David Hansen points out in his book, Long Wandering Prayer, this is what he says. He says, as wonderful as this picture is, many of us find it difficult to believe that that could become the operative vision for our lives. He says, we can't imagine not worrying. We drop off worry at a prayer meeting, but it stalks us home. You ever had that experience in church? You're like, oh, I gave it up to God. But then you get home, you look at your checkbook, you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> How am I going to pay for this? It stocks us home. And that's why what Hansen says is we might need to take Jesus even more literally than we usually do. Because you'll notice that twice in this particular chapter that's get read, Jesus tells us to consider something. He says, consider the ravens in verse 24. And down in 27, he says, consider the lilies. And Hansen says the reason we need to do this is because Jesus knows something really important about us as human beings. Jesus knows that we can't get rid of worry with a wink. <laughs> and he realizes that a short prayer is unlikely to solve the problem of a long worry. Because in Hansen's word, it took a long time for anxiety to grip our guts, and therefore only a long prayer can release that power. It took a long time for anxiety to grip your gut, and therefore only a long prayer is gonna get rid of it. And that's why Jesus teaches us to consider the ravens, reflect on the lilies, what this word consider means, it really literally means to contemplate, to meditate, to mull on, to chew on something. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
And what he's saying is he, he's not saying go into a room and think about ravens or uh, go to your computer and uh, uh, Google a picture of the lilies and read up on them. <laughs> That's not what he's suggesting. In fact, exactly what Jesus is suggesting is that we need to get up and go outside. We need to get up and go outside. We need to go for a hike. We need to get out in nature. And as we do, we need to start to look around. We start to notice the squirrels. We should start to ponder the maple trees. We should mull over the streams. And as we do, we need to stop and consider and reflect on how our Heavenly Father takes care of each and every one of these things. That's what we need to do. Now, I realize some of you might be thinking to yourself, that's kind of weird, Nathan. I mean, how in the world is that prayer? How does that help us out? Well, again, let me invite you to listen to the words of David Hansen again. And this is what he says. This is a, a longer quote, but he says in the book, if you take your lunch to a botanical garden near where you work and you walk along looking at the plants and you thank God for the beauty of creation, for the grace he gives some people to collect and to display plants, that's prayer. And I suspect that you will walk away feeling far less anxious about your life than if you had spent that hour in your office or even in a church trying to pray the whole time, feeling guilty and anxious that your mind wandered. So get outside, just notice things, and it will change your perspective. I can guarantee that that happens. I mean, sometimes what I do is I, I live down on the other end of the Washington Old Dominion Trail, and I will literally bike all the way up here to Vienna, and uh, I don't even know where I was on the trail. Uh, I biked all the way up, and there was this worry that was on my heart, and I stopped. I got past kind of where the Whole Foods is and kept going, and, and there was this wooded area, and I just got, I got there, and I just looked around, and I noticed the squirrels. I noticed the streams. I was just out in nature. As I bike back to Arlington, I realized that the anxiety that was gripping me, that was like consuming me, wasn't there. It wasn't that the, the, the fear had been solved or resolved. It's that I was different because I got out and did exactly what Jesus was suggesting. Let me encourage you to do that. Go outside and notice how God is taking care of all the small things around us. In fact, clothing them with such beauty that's when anxiety begins to lose a grip on our soul. And so that's what we need to do. Which brings us to the third thing that Jesus teaches us about dealing with anxiety and worry. Look down at uh, verses 29 to 31. The third and final thing Jesus says. And he says, And don't seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. And said, Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Jesus says, I don't want to only remember the real point of life and to stop and reflect on how your heavenly father takes care of things. But thirdly, I also want you to redirect your attention. Redirect your attention. Develop the habit of seeking the kingdom of God. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to seek the kingdom of God? Well, look down at what Jesus says in verses 32 and 34. He says, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that pursuing God's kingdom has a very tangible manifestation. It takes a very tangible form. It means instead of hoarding our possessions, piling them up, we should start sharing them with others. And you start giving them away, which when you think about it, is actually pretty wise because often those are the very things that give us worry, right? The things we care about. I don't know if you ever get a new phone, you're like, oh, 
I hope I don't drop it the whole time. Or you have a new car and you're worried about people scratching. You see the people parked at the very edge of the Harris Tier lot because they're consumed with worry someone's going to scratch their new car, right? Those very things that we think are going to give us so much joy, actually, when we really stop and reflect on it, are often the thing that give us worry and stress. Jesus said, don't, don't invest your life in those sort of things. Instead, invest your life in things that will last. Put your treasures in things that won't fail. Let me give you a picture of what this could look like. Early this fall, I got a text from a friend who lives in Raleigh, uh, back where I lived when I was in my late 20s to my uh, late 30s. And um, my friend Jeff was uh, texting me to let me know that a, a mutual friend of ours named Linda had died rather unexpectedly. And so I decided I was gonna take the day off I was going to drive down to North Carolina to attend her funeral. She was someone who was quite close to me. And uh, uh, as I was by myself, I was heading down 95. I had lots of time to think about Linda, think about my friendship with her. And I began to remember the first time I met her. I I met Linda and her husband, Johnny, uh, back in a new members uh, class in our church in Raleigh. And uh, as we are part of that class, one of the the great things, I'll recommend this if you have this at your church, we decided out of that class we're gonna form a small group of the other couples who are in that particular new members class. And it was a great uh, small group. Um, What was interesting about that group, it was kind of intergenerational. Uh, My wife and I, we were in our 20s at the time, recently married. Uh, Johnny and Linda and a few other couples were a whole generation older than us. And it was a great experience, a great way to have a small group. So sort of a a plug for small groups if you're not in one. Um, And when I first got to know Linda, I thought I had her kind of pegged. She was this very sweet, very Southern woman who was incredibly hospitable. She couldn't meet you without kissing you. Oh, Nathan, you know, with this deep North Carolina drawl. And uh, and I sort of thought I had it pegged. I thought this woman is awesome, but I bet she has lived a very charmed sort of life. And then one night at small group, she and her husband, Johnny, began to share about their faith journey. And it was an incredible story they began to, to share because in some ways, I was right. In some ways, I was right. Johnny and Linda had grown up both in very nice homes in North Carolina. Linda had met Johnny in college. They had gotten married. They, they went to North Carolina for law school. He, uh, Johnny, I should say, went to law school, got done. They moved to Raleigh. He started his law practice, began to do very well for himself. They started a family. They had a beautiful home. They lived in a great neighborhood. They joined the best country club. They ran in the best circles in town. Johnny's career was just taking off. And then one day, something happened that turned their life upside down. Linda said that she woke up one day, went down to the end of the driveway to get the the morning paper, and she was met by several police officers who were there asking for her husband. And unbeknownst to Linda, her husband, Johnny, had been engaging in some very unethical practices in his law firm, and it was catching up to him. He ended up getting arrested that very day, taken to prison, put in jail, given a a, a long, uh, I should say probably more like a medium-length prison term, leaving Linda back home in Raleigh with three young kids and not a clue about what she should do next. She said it was a moment in which fear and anxiety could have taken over her life forever. And in some ways, that would have made sense because her old life did change dramatically. She went from being at the center of life in Raleigh to becoming, in her words, almost a social pariah. as the people who had attached themselves to them, as they were charting their way up to the top, as they realized they were now on the way down, they abandoned ship very, very quickly. And things got very tight financially for her as well. But Linda said in the midst of all this, something very surprising happened to her. 
She said even though most of her old friends stopped hanging around her or even checking in anymore, they didn't want to be attached to her shame, a few of them stood by really, really closely. And these friends happened to be, she noticed, each and every one of them a Christian. And they began to help her with her needs, practical needs, helping her with childcare, helping with the bills, giving her a break, going to visit Johnny in prison, in fact. And through that whole experience, she and her husband, Johnny, discovered something unexpected. They discovered the love of their heavenly father. They learned that God was really there for them. He was offering them forgiveness and grace. Like many Southerners, they had been church their whole lives and had never had the penny drop and discovered that it's actually true. <laughs> and it was life-changing. And soon both of them committed their lives to Jesus. Eventually, Johnny got out of prison. He moved back to Raleigh. They, they began to start over. They began to work in the marriage, went to counseling. He began to start a new career. And many things changed. But you know what's interesting? Even though in some ways they went back to the old way of life, in many ways things were incredibly different. Because things that they had cared about so much before, about climbing the social ladder, making sure they were in all the right circles, those things were not that important anymore. And things that they never really paid attention to in the past, those things began to rise to the surface in their lives. And by the time I got to know Linda, at first as her friend and later as one of her pastors, I began to hear stories about Linda, sort of good gossip that would happen about her because everyone loved her. I learned how she would go downtown each week to mentor kids through an inner city ministry. I learned how she would regularly babysit for other young moms so they could go to a Bible study, so they could get a break. I learned how she and her husband would open their home every week to the local Young Life Club. I heard about how they would give away untold amounts of money to support people and ministries all over the city. And perhaps most important of all, I got to witness how Linda truly loved everyone that she would meet with a real and genuine love that she was receiving from her Heavenly Father. And I was thinking about all that as I was driving down that highway, thinking about the story of her life, who she was, and when I finally arrived in Raleigh, I, I got to the church where I used to go, where I used to work, in fact. I entered the sanctuary for, for her funeral, and I couldn't believe my eyes. I'd never seen it that packed, not in Christmas, not in Easter. There were people sitting in every available seat. There were people lined up along the walls. There were people sitting on the floor in the narthex. There was nowhere to sit. They were young and old, black and white, Rich and poor, Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, you name it. And they were all there to remember how Linda had made an impact on their lives. And as I left there that day, I was struck by the fact that her life is a picture of what it looks like to meet our Heavenly Father in the midst of our greatest anxieties, in the midst of our greatest worries, and to discover something amazing that God really does care about us. He really will look after us. And not only that, but God has a mission for our lives. He has a mission for our lives, so that he's calling us to extend that same love, that same blessing, that same grace that we receive, and to extend it on to others. And so let me close today by asking you a question. Where are you experiencing anxiety right now? What's weighing you down this morning? <laughs> what burden are you carrying with you into this room here today? Because God wants you to know something. Your heavenly Father wants you to know that he is here to meet with you this morning. He's here to listen to you. He's here to support you. And most importantly, he's here to take that weight off your back. 
In fact, he's come to offer you something different. He's come to say to you, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who knows us intimately. You know the things that keep us awake at night. You know the questions that haunt us, the things that we can't even express to our spouse or our best friend or our roommate. Lord, you love us, you care for us, and you want to change us. And we pray that as we begin to sing and receive from you at your table, that we would have a taste of what this new life that you're talking about in the scriptures is all about. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.